Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event in association with the Lundberg Institute. This is the ninth annual Lundberg Institute Lecture. And we have today, of course, Dr. Lundberg, the CEO and founder of uh, the Lundberg Institute. Thank you very much for all the work that you've done with the Commonwealth Club over the last nine years in presenting these lectures. And the Lundberg Institute is uh, designed to appeal to the medical population, both the doctors and the patients, to have one patient, one outcome, one consultation, one approach to the health of the patient, and also to try to bring more reason and uh, reasoned understanding and more quality care to the medical profession and medical uh, service for the patients. So tonight, in the ninth uh, Lundberg Institute uh, lecture, we are going to be listening to the lecture Normalizing High-Quality Healthcare, Looking Back and Moving Forward by Dr. Kenneth Kaiser. Right now, he's the Chief Healthcare Transformation Officer and Senior Executive Vice President of Atlas Research, and he has worked for the VA in a top position. He's worked for the state of California. He has worked in Washington, D.C. He has been at the forefront of many, many advances in quality care, and he's going to give us a little historical background on this. That historical background includes going back to ancient Greece, to the doctors, to Galen, medieval doctors, Mamomenes, and many other people who've gotten into medicine, and each of them, how they moved forward the quality of care. And we're going to join uh, that lecture uh, with the recording now, about 10 or 15 minutes into the lecture, because of a technical difficulty. So thank you very much for being here tonight, everyone. And we will pick this up with the Q&A after uh, Dr. Kaiser speaks. The, the first in a, a, a series of reports now was this report to Air as Human, uh, which talked about the uh, number of people who die each year uh, from medical errors. Uh, it only looked at deaths that occurred in hospitals, not in emergency departments in hospitals, but only in hospitals uh, inpatients. It didn't look at the rest of healthcare, care and, and concluded that there were somewhere uh, around 44,000 and 98,000 deaths a year, which we have seen, as other studies were done subsequently, that that grossly underestimated uh, the burden, that it was actually much higher than that, uh, as study after study uh, has shown. But this was, was quite a shock uh, to uh, the healthcare system and, and others. This was... Um, at the, the just about the the same time, uh, a presidential uh, commission uh, reported out its findings uh, and found essentially the same thing that was found in these other reports that, like the the roundtable, uh, that healthcare quality problems were rampant throughout healthcare. Uh, it wasn't related to payment. It wasn't related to some of the other things that people uh, thought they might be, uh, and uh, made a number of recommendations, indeed, uh, recommending that there be an entity uh, which subsequently became the National Quality Forum that would be the, the national uh, entity that uh, looked at or endorsed performance measures, laid out a national agenda for quality uh, in the country, a number uh, of other things. Well, and just to uh, to finish out this list, the, the uh, IOM also produced a another uh, report called "Crossing the Quality Chasm," which again is a uh, was a landmark report. And it followed close on the heels of the Taeras Human report, uh, and again talked about uh, there wasn't just a little crack in in uh, quality. Uh, there was this this giant chasm. Uh, and uh, made a number of recommendations about what needed to occur and laid out a template for uh, much of the, what has guided uh, the quality improvement efforts over the past couple uh, decades. So if we you know, try to um, put all this together, uh, you know, there's a lot of individual things uh, that we could uh, talk about. Uh, but if we, you know, what really changed, what, what caused the, the tipping point? Well, it was first that, uh, most of the, that there really was broad recognition that we had a major quality problem. 
Uh, it wasn't, you know, multiple different groups of different types of people, different political persuasions, whatever, had come to the, the same conclusion uh, that uh, health care quality really was uh, inadequate, insufficient, left lots to be uh, desired. Uh, and the, the data, uh, the facts were irrefutable. Uh, people could no longer deny the fact that we had a, a huge quality problem uh, in the United States. Now, I would be, be remiss if I didn't also note that there were a lot of other things happening in the scientific area and the therapeutic area that also uh, contributed to some of the improvements that occurred that, that you know, Science, and particularly things like uh, uh, un, un, uh, or decoding the, the human genome and, and a lot of the work in, in uh, immunology and other areas, really started to give uh, insights into uh, uh, the nature uh, of disease at a cellular and, and subcellular level, uh, which then led to advances in therapeutics. So when we talk about some of the improvements in quality that have occurred, it's also due to because science is better. We're starting to really understand uh, at, at a much uh, more granular level what's causing disease and being able to target uh, therapies accordingly. But there were a whole bunch of other things uh, as well. It was also at about this time, uh, that evidence started to accrue uh, from some unlikely places, for example, the Department of Veterans Affairs and, and the VA healthcare system that started to apply these methods of quality improvement that had been used in manufacturing uh, to healthcare, and lo and behold, they work. Uh, you know, they actually started to, you could use them. Uh, and it improved the quality with very demonstrable uh, uh, data that was, you know, unequivocal. So the, this whole idea that we could take uh, quality improvement methods and the technology, if you will, from other areas and apply it to healthcare started to take hold. Now, I can tell you that uh, in the late 1990s, uh, I can recall engaging in rooms like this, uh, very heated debates about can you measure the quality of healthcare? Because the conventional view at that time was you couldn't even measure quality. It was too complex. It was, you know, you can't even attempt to. And of course, that's only of historical interest uh, at this point, because of course you can measure it. It's maybe a little bit more complicated than measuring the quality of toaster ovens or microwaves or whatever, but uh, microwave ovens, but, but uh, of course you can, can measure uh, quality just like you can measure other things, and if you're going to improve it, you've got to measure it to know what you're doing and, and how you're going to move forward. There was also this, this growing understanding, particularly from uh, looking at medical errors, that it wasn't just about individual competence, which had been the mindset for well over a century from Codman back in the early part of the 20th century, you know, about getting rid of the bad apples, the, the, the players that uh, just weren't trained good enough, they didn't know what they were doing, they shouldn't be in healthcare, and it was really focused on the individual. But what we certainly learned from uh, looking at medical errors is, yeah, there, there are individual components, but it's the system that people work in uh, that also has a lot to do with why errors occur and, and uh, what happens. So this understanding that is both uh, individual competency, uh, but also uh, the systems was uh, critical in shifting the mindset. And then there, there was this idea that, well, maybe payment is also linked uh, you know, you, you get what you pay for, uh, and, and at least that's how it works in, in other industries. Uh, and so actually that became a, a central focus of what's been happening over the uh, last uh, couple of decades uh, when really we have focused uh, over this last 20 years or so on things like improving uh, licensure and accreditation and uh, certification requirements for uh, physicians, i.e., I don't know of any specialties now that once you're board certified, you're certified forever. I mean, you have to get renewed every 10 years and you know, a variety of other things focusing on that individual component. But this idea of, of measuring uh, performance and not just measuring it, but actually publicly reporting it. Uh, you know, that, that had a powerful uh, effect in, in many ways. This technology, the quality improvement technology uh, that I mentioned and these different methods 
were largely unknown to uh, the healthcare sector. Uh, and so there was a lot to do with just building capacity so that people understood what's a PDSA and, you know, what's CQM and, you know, all the, the other uh, methods that are used in, in quality improvement. Uh, modernizing healthcare information management, uh, you know, electronic health records in particular, but a lot of other things. Uh, you know, healthcare, modern healthcare is probably the most information intense activity uh, that human beings have ever engaged in, with the exception of maybe the intelligence uh, world and, and maybe a couple of others. But the uh, but we were using methods that were state of the art and the late 19th century. Uh, and so, you know, there was, a, we needed to move forward and start using modern information management techniques uh, to deal with the data. Uh, and that still remains a work in progress, notwithstanding that electronic health records are, are widely used now. Uh, there's still lots uh, that needs to be done there. And then the, the last strategy is largely how do you align uh, finances uh, and payment uh, with the outcomes uh, that one would like to uh, get, uh, which is still uh, very much a, a, a work in progress. But, um, again, the, the data uh, was uh, quite clear uh, that, and, and I know no hospital would ever uh, say that they engaged in, in things that promoted errors, but the reality uh, was that you made money off errors uh, under a, a fee-for-service system uh, because all those blood tests, all those extra days in the hospital, all those extra x-rays, other things that were being done, they're all billable. Uh, so there really, it, it wasn't, you know, overt, but there was no incentive to discontinue uh, or to, to focus on uh, reducing some of these things because it meant that you were going to take a financial hit. And it wasn't, you know, th there's a robust literature. I've just picked out a, a couple examples here, uh, surgical complications. Uh, JAMA, George. Uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that it actually reduced things like surgical complications, if you reduced bloodstream infections, if you reduced a number of other things, uh, you took a financial hit. Uh, and then if you said, well, and you also have to put in an electronic health record, and that's going to cost you uh, several million dollars as well, it's kind of from a hospital point of view, you're, you're kind of taking a double whammy here uh, with this quality improvement stuff. Um, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, so... What, uh, I'm mindful of the uh, clock, so what's changed uh, over the last 20 years with the strategies that uh, I mentioned? Uh, and there have been clearly uh, some improvements, uh, but we're not to where, I know uh, certainly haven't been involved in this uh, early on, uh, we're not to the point where I would have hoped we would be uh, at this point, we're not to the place where Many other people thought we would be 20 years uh, uh, later. There is, uh, certainly, it continues to uh, be, and perhaps even more than there was 20 years ago, this recognition that healthcare is very fragmented uh, and uh, that quality is not as, as good as it, it should be. We have had widespread adoption of electronic health records, uh, which drives many clinicians uh, crazy. Uh, but, you know, the, that's, as I said, the, there's still a work in, in progress. Uh, performance measurement is, is being widely used, uh, although one can make a pretty good case today that uh, maybe we have too many measures and maybe we're not measuring the, the right things uh, and maybe we're not using the information that we get from uh, those performance measures in, in the right way either. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done as to how we incorporate performance measurements into our processes of care that actually ends up improving uh, quality. Uh, there is uh, a lot of uh, work now being done applying uh, the quality improvement methods that, that we uh, have mentioned. Healthcare is certainly in the middle of massive uh, consolidation um, uh, across the board. California is a great example uh, of that. Uh, we have continued to see uh, substantial reductions in cardiovascular mortality and, and mortality from cancer. This started uh, before we actually started the quality improvement uh, efforts. Uh, 
through a, a number of, of uh, circumstances. Uh, but it certainly the quality improvement efforts have, have added to and, and enhanced the uh, declining trends that we were already seeing uh, with the rates of uh, deaths from myocardial infarction and other uh, cardio and cerebrovascular conditions, as well as with some cancers. Uh, we can't say that across the board because some cancers are actually increasing uh, in prevalence, and uh, particularly those related to obesity and um, some others that, that we don't really understand why they're increasing. There clearly has been uh, some reduction in hospital-acquired uh, conditions. Uh, some of those fall into the medical error category. Some of them may not quite be errors, but relate to processes of care uh, related to you know, surgical site infections and, and uh, catheters that stay in too long, uh, uh, IVs, other things. Um, and there has been some significant reduction in preventable uh, readmissions as we have focused on that in the last decade or so. Uh, you know, it's probably 25% or more of people who are readmitted to the hospital for the same condition that they were admitted for previously uh, in 30 days after their discharge shouldn't be there. I mean, they're preventable uh, readmissions. And there has been some significant uh, decline in that. Uh, although there's still a lot of argument going on as to whether we're actually targeting and focusing on, on the right things and trying to reduce uh, readmissions. Just, uh, again, just have to throw in some data slides here because uh, it wouldn't be right not to. Um, but if we look at uh, reductions in, in hospital-acquired conditions, again, uh, you know, this is just looks at from 2014 to 2017. Uh, you know, there, there has been, by and large, um, uh, decrease across the board. Uh, the one exception to this is pressure ulcers, uh, which really hasn't seen uh, a decrease, and indeed it's, it's uh, increased in, in some cases. And we haven't seen that uh, big of a reduction in, uh, in mortality, morbidity from falls, uh, as one might have hoped to see. But many other things have, have gotten better, so we should celebrate uh, our successes there. Um, I don't know what happened. Anyway, the uh, preventable harm uh, continues to be a problem, though, notwithstanding the, the success that uh, we have seen. Um, and it's not, you know, some institutions have made uh, some fairly dramatic improvements and, and really should be very proud of it, but it's not uniform across the, the healthcare system. Uh, indeed, I uh, looked at surgical uh, retained surgical objects in, in California uh, hospitals uh, a couple of years ago, three or four years ago now. Uh, and what we uh, found uh, is uh, that the overwhelming majority of hospitals in California that do surgery report uh, having at least one uh, over the time period that we were looking at, about a 10-year time period, when they became reportable in California in, in 2007. Uh, most have at least one. But there's a smaller number of hospitals, 16%, which actually accounted for well over half of all of the retained surgical objects. Uh, and, you know, like, why is that occurring? Because some of those were big-name uh, universities uh, or other well-known institutions. Uh, and we suggested to the Department of Public Health, who was funding, that we should actually do a follow-on study to try to understand whether those institutions that were reporting were just better reporters, they were just complying with the law and actually reporting things, or whether they actually had more errors uh, or more retained surgical objects occurring uh, than in others. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, department declined our, our offer. Um, so we don't know, but it, it, again, there's a, a small uh, number of facilities that disproportionately account uh, for, in this case, surgical errors, but it's pretty much true across the board for other types of, of uh, um, healthcare-related conditions uh, as well. So uh, I, I just uh, throw in a quote here from uh, one of my former uh, mentees, Ashish uh, Jaw from uh, Harvard who has gone on to achieve a great deal of, of claim. But, you know, he comments on, on how slow uh, it is uh, to change uh, in healthcare and, and uh, how painful it is uh, at times looking at, at how slow it is to make the sorts of changes that we know need to be made, have to be made, uh, but they're just not uh, occurring. 
So as I um, as I uh, I mean, can we just go back one? So as I mentioned at the outset, um, National Quality Forum uh, convened a group uh, many months ago uh, to try to look at where we've been over the last 20 years and where we might go uh, over the next decade uh, to try to normalize high-quality health care so that every patient everywhere, every time, uh, got high-quality care, because that certainly is not the... Uh, what happens today. There are a number of uh, entities, some large health systems among others, who have contributed to supporting this effort. Uh, and some of the areas that we're looking at, we're, we're not done uh, with that, so I'm giving you some kind of preliminary uh, views of where we, we think we may be issuing a report towards the end of uh, this year. Uh, obviously, we, we still need to work on uh, hospital-acquired conditions and, and medical errors. Uh, the question uh, that we have to ask ourselves, though, is, is why, you know, why do we accept any level of these? Uh, why shouldn't we be striving to eliminate them entirely so that there are zero defects, basically, which is what has happened in, in some other industries? Now, we, we may not get there, but why shouldn't our goal be uh, that we're going to eliminate them uh, entirely. Uh, you know, one of the things that when you uh, look at American healthcare compared to the rest of the world, what you see is, is that the rest of the world has recognized that there are a lot of social things that actually affect health outcomes, you know, like whether you have housing uh, or whether you uh, have food uh, and, and, uh, to eat, uh, whether you have transportation to get to your uh, appointments and, and go down the list of these social things. And they have invested much more in these social areas, uh, which may account for why they're getting better outcomes uh, on some of the areas that we're not, because in America, this idea that, that social factors, the social determinants of health, as, as they are known, actually plays a really big role, um, is just coming into the fore. Um, the light has gone on. Uh, I think now we, I don't know whether there's a tipping point there to be achieved or not, but I, I think we are moving down that pathway. And certainly from the perspective of this, this task force, we uh, believe that uh, we, we have to factor in these the social factors, these social determinants of health in everything that we, we do in, in healthcare. Uh, it has to be a part of what we measure, uh, part of what we look at. Uh, now, how that gets operationalized and, and translated into specific things, it's going to require some work uh, to get us there. But that's clearly one of the areas that, that we're focusing on, uh, which kind of segues into the next, that, that we have to focus on, on care uh, of the individuals and, and person-centered care, uh, focus, you know, care where, to where the individual is. But at the same time, we have to focus on populations, however you define uh, populations, whether they're, they're defined by uh, a diagnosis, whether they're defined by urban versus rural, whether they're defined by age or gender. I mean, there, you can define populations in, in many different ways. Uh, but that we, we can't, as a um, sector, as an industry, however you want to characterize healthcare, only focus on the individual, that we have to focus more uh, on populations. And that has to be um, incorporated into how we pay for things uh, and uh, our processes of care uh, as well. Uh, we think we, as I alluded to already, uh, we need to uh, do a better job of looking at how we use performance measures. What are we measuring? Uh, are we measuring things from the patient's perspective? Uh, we measure an awful lot of things from a technical perspective, from a clinician's perspective. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we don't have all that many measures that really look at things through the eyes of, of patients or consumers, uh, uh, patients and families, and, and that broad uh, uh, bucket of what we, we would call uh, consumers. And, and we think we have to move much more into focusing on where uh, what things are that are important to uh, patients, uh, and that that data has to become much more transparent, and it has to be data that the consumer uh, can use, uh, and that's relevant to them. Uh, at the moment, uh, certainly most uh, 
uh, laypersons, uh, quite sophisticated laypersons, have a hard time understanding what do I do with this information, uh, all these performance uh, measures and the, and the data. I mean, they, they, it's not something that's actionable uh, for them, and, and we have to move forward in trying to make uh, uh, data that's much more relevant and actionable for uh, for patients. And finally, uh, I think we... we uh, have to apply uh, technology in uh, ways uh, much better than, than we have uh, to date. There's a lot of uh, activity uh, going on in this area, uh, but whether it's uh, artificial or augmented intelligence or just using sophisticated information management tools, uh, you know, there's a variety of, of things where we need to apply the technology that's readily available uh, to healthcare in a much uh, quicker uh, and broader way than has been the case uh, historically. So some of the things, just to give you a, a, a preview, uh, some of the things that we are talking about uh, as far as action items moving forward, this idea of having a unique patient identifier. Uh, this We aren't the first ones to talk about this. This has been talked about for a long time. But one of the big problems in healthcare right now, you have data from multiple different sources, but you can't link it. You can't bring it all together. And what other countries have done quite successfully uh, is that everyone gets an identifier. Basically, when you come out of the womb, you get an a identifier that sticks with you for life, and that then allows data uh, to be aggregated from wherever the source uh, using that unique patient identifier. Now, I, I'm mindful that uh, there's a lot of issues attendant to this, uh, and that will be highly uh, controversial, uh, but I expect that that's one of the recommendations that we will be uh, advancing later uh, this year. Uh, and we need to standardize the data. Uh, again, there's, there's tons of data out there, uh, but it's just not standardized, and you can't aggregate it, you can't uh, uh, combine it. Uh, in ways that makes it optimally uh, useful. I know that's not terribly sexy uh, to talk about standardizing data, uh, but it's really critical uh, if we're going to uh, move this uh, forward. Uh, as I said a moment ago, we really need to uh, adopt uh, population-based, uh, population health-based methods of, of payment. Now, what's not said there <coughs> and what people will grasp before long, is that fee-for-service has to go away, um, except for in very perhaps selective uh, situations, um, uh, that we really have to think, uh, and there are lots of labels that are used, global payment and, and other terms, but it's really based on uh, paying for populations and improving the health outcome uh, of populations and the individuals in that we need to incorporate the social determinants, as I've already uh, talked about. Uh, we need to do more to educate and engage consumers. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, consumers have to be driving this train much more uh, than they have uh, in the past, which means that we have to help educate them. We have to provide information that's understandable and that's actionable uh, at a consumer level. Uh, and uh, we have to do a lot more in the area of virtual care. Um, how many, when was the last time, how many people went into a bank in the last month to do your banking? How about in the last year? Okay. A few people. And there's a few things you do have to go to the bank for, but, but not very many. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that's an example where, you know, it's all virtual. Uh, and they've been able to find ways to safeguard and protect the, the data. Uh, and uh, there are certainly other examples that one could point to as well. But why aren't we doing that in healthcare? I mean, you know, people talk about <clears throat> the, uh, you know, minute clinics and, and having a clinic in uh, uh, CVS or Walmart or pick your favorite. It's, well, why not just have it in your living room? Seems like that would be even better uh, than having to go to the, the local pharmacy. Uh, and it's technologically possible. Uh, but it requires a whole lot of work in shifting our processes of care. <clears throat> there are some legal issues <clears throat> like, uh, for example, licensure. Uh, so one of the issues that we're wrestling with right now, not, not quite sure, but why do we still have state licensure of physicians in the United States in 2020? I mean, why aren't we moving towards national licensure? Or why aren't we moving towards 
something, be, and certainly as a, a, a catalyst or something promoting virtual care. I mean, if you're providing virtual care, you can be sitting in Florida and taking care of people in Alaska or wherever, uh, and it really doesn't matter except that you may not be licensed and therefore the laws don't allow you uh, to do that. So there are these barriers that are really anachronistic uh, at this point in time. And in saying this, I I expect I'll probably get some hate mail from the the state medical board who I pay my dues to every two years. Uh, But, uh, yeah, there are a lot of of political and and other issues that will have to be addressed uh, in getting there. But when you think about it, uh, you know, it really uh that is perhaps passe just to to wrap this up uh as i mentioned already we we need to use uh technology uh much more aggressively uh, much more broadly than we're doing uh and there's all kinds of of uh, uh technologies out there that are potentially applicable uh to healthcare yes some of them are still nascent and there's a lot of work to be done uh but they will evolve uh more quickly if they're being used uh, we need to highlight the folks who get it and, and who are doing a, a good job. As I mentioned, there are some systems who really are doing an outstanding job in addressing medical errors and improving the quality. Well, if they can do it, why can't others? What are they doing that's, that's different uh, than what others are doing? What can we learn from those uh, exemplars that could be broadly applicable? Uh, and how do we highlight that and, and bring that and last, uh, we need to do a lot of work uh, uh, with our workforce uh, so that they uh, are uh, aligned with the emerging healthcare culture, uh, that they really understand what it takes to provide uh, safe and, and effective evidence based care, what it means to provide value driven care. And a lot of this goes to uh, medical schools and, and medical training. Uh, and I. Uh, Recall Jordy Cohen, who used to be the the uh, president of the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges, and I think George, you may recall this as, as well. Uh, not that long ago, he was saying, you know, we are doing a superb job of training physicians to practice in the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, medical education and having just come from a, a faculty role, it was frustrating as hell sometimes because they're not teaching the stuff that you need to know uh, to practice or forward-looking what we need to practice in the healthcare of the future. Um, and if you ever want to really get back at someone that you don't like, if you're a faculty member, you assign them to the curriculum committee. Uh, it's the most thankless job. Anyway, um, <laughs> let, let me uh, just wind this up, maybe summarize um, so we've been talking about and, and trying to improve uh, the quality of health care, uh, at least in the written record, for at least 4,000 uh, years, uh, possibly longer. Uh, health care, uh, you know, as um, Sir Cyril uh, Chandler, a uh, famous British physician, uh, used to say that health care used to be... Uh, uh, you know, uh, ineffective and, and safe, uh, but now it's, it's become uh, complex uh, and dangerous uh, because we actually have more powerful drugs. We know what we're doing, a surgical intervention. You know, there, there's lots of things have changed, and, and it really has become a high-risk, high-hazard activity, uh, although we typically don't think about healthcare that way. Uh, having spent a portion of my much younger life in the, the nuclear uh, submarine uh, area, uh, which is clearly a high risk, high hazard. They have a whole different mindset about how they approach their work uh, than we do in healthcare. Uh, but healthcare uh, certainly has all those same characteristics of being a high hazard, high risk uh, activity. Uh, the uh, science and, and technology of healthcare quality improvement really has evolved only quite recently. Uh, so for all those 3,000-plus years, uh, it wasn't for lack of trying and it wasn't for uh, lack of smart people, but they really didn't have the technology and the means by, to really improve or, or the, the scientific understanding of, of uh, life uh, to uh, do the sorts of things that, that we can uh, today. Medical errors and, and low quality, poor quality, unnecessary care continue to uh, extract a, a high uh, cost from a morti- morbidity and mortality perspective, as well as uh, from pure uh, financial costs uh, as well. 
Uh, and while there uh, has been a lot of activity directed towards quality improvement in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, uh, and there has been some improvements, it, it has not been uh, sufficient. Uh, it certainly, uh, high-quality uh, health care is not the norm uh, that every patient can expect every time that they seek uh, care, um, and that's where uh, we need to uh, get to. Uh, and two of the, the factors that really we need to focus on uh, moving forward is this consumer engagement uh, and the uh, use of, of technology uh, much more aggressively uh, than we have before uh, in healthcare. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Thank you. Thank you for a great talk. Um, One metric that I didn't uh, I saw in one slide, but uh, uh, I didn't hear uh, much about was uh, unnecessary care or um, I I reviewed the literature of uh, unnecessary or harmful interventions and the consensus among healthcare providers themselves that at least a third of things that we do in healthcare either are uh, neutral or harmful. So uh, wouldn't a metric for uh, the next 10 years or whenever uh, to reduce our uh, interventions, our um, things that we do, the drugs that we prescribe, which are on an upward trajectory maybe compared to the countries that were doing better than we were and outcomes um, and just days in the hospital wouldn't that be something you'd want to measure you'd want that to go down if uh, health care was to improve and outcomes yeah well and hospital days of course is is measured uh, in, in a number of different ways the um, what you're suggesting the concept is is absolutely sound it, it makes a lot of sense the, the challenge there as, a, as someone who uh, used to spend a lot of time in, in the measure development area is how to construct a measure uh, that's reliable and sound and uh, can be uh, the data can be acquired in a reasonably efficient manner, uh, and maybe it, it is possible, uh, but those would be some fairly large lifts that would need to be overcome before we actually put performance measures uh, in place with regard to that. Now, you're probably aware of the, the, the Smart Care California and, and kind of the Smart Care initiative that's going on, looking at uh, low-value care, unnecessary care, and uh, multiple specialties have contributed their top five things that we need to focus on getting rid of. Uh, and some of that is actually incorporated. Some of those things are incorporated into to some uh, performance measures that are, are utilized right now. Certainly CMS looks at, at some of that. Uh, so maybe we're not there uh, you know, as far as we need to be, but uh, there are people who are thinking along the same lines because it makes a lot of sense. My question is regarding reimbursement from insurance company. You mentioned that we should take a more aggressive approach using virtual reality, artificial reality, and how we're going to get um, how patients can get the reimbursement, insurance uh, company reimbursement for that sort of uh, preventive uh, treatment or healthcare, uh, you know, um, method. Well, you know, of course, the Affordable Care Act did a a great deal to um, help with the preventive uh, interventions. As far as virtual care, that that remains a problematic uh, issue, particularly here in in California, where the Department of Managed Health Care hasn't yet come to grips with how you assure that uh, when a plan says that they are providing uh, these services through a virtual means that they actually are uh, providing them. Uh, you know, it's an area that has uh, at least the potential uh, to uh, 
uh, be taken advantage of, uh, and people are struggling with how you do that because, uh, you know, as a, a precursor to whether you're going to pay uh, for those virtual visits, you know, at whatever rate one decides to pay for them or to, to credit them towards a payment system, there has to be some assurance that the care is actually being provided and that it's being provided, you know, competently uh, by, uh, you know, competent providers on, on the other end. And, and that's an issue that uh, a number of, uh, I know, plans are, are wrestling with as well as regulatory bodies. Uh, but it's uh, the move to virtual care is inescapable. Uh, we have to do it. Um, and people like it. You know, the, the um, public opinion surveys that have been done indicate that well in excess of 70 to 80 percent of people would like to get their health care uh, through telehealth or some other virtual means. Uh, people that have gotten their health care that way. There's over a 90% uh, satisfaction, or people are very happy with it usually. I think most of them are like over 95%. So, uh, you know, it works, and, and it can be done. Uh, our regulatory uh, and oversight bodies have been a bit slow, though, and, and our payment systems have been a bit slow uh, in moving it forward, and, and that's something we really need to work on. Ken, um Thank you. Uh, it, it was uh, nice to hear you uh, basically imply that as we have ba- better basic knowledge and uh, effective interventions, whether it be in advanced disease or early disease or preventives, that uh, some of the problems that you note become even more glaring, that a system that it's effective needs to be applied uh, and uh, some of these are impediments. And I'm, I'm interested in the impediments. Uh, you know, there is a long history of effective treatments not being applied uh, quickly to needy populations, going all the way back to the treatment of rickets uh, many centuries ago. Um, I, I wonder how the professional societies uh, in the United States, in your mind, play in either promoting uh, effective uh, change in effective treatments or retarding, uh, and that may be tied up with incentives, of course, retarding uh, uh, the application of, of new methods and new uh, treatments in American care. So I can only comment on those that I don't pay dues to. So, uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I don't... Um, I don't know if I could make a broad statement in, in that regard. You know, healthcare tends to be very conservative and, and slow uh, to adopt uh, new technologies, uh, new ways of doing things, new, new knowledge. Uh, although um, healthcare is not unlike other industries where finances uh, is a universal elixir, uh, and when things get paid for, it's, it's uh, Amazing how rapidly the uptake can be uh, sometimes. Um, one of the reasons why, I'm doing a little bit of a, a shift here, one of the reasons why uh, we need to um, move towards more population-based ways of payment is to remove uh, those financial incentives from each little piecemeal thing. Uh, so that if you're actually paying for uh, a better outcome uh, of an individual or a population, however you get there, uh, really doesn't matter. So that if there's some new technology, new way of, of doing it that, that gets you there quickly, then there's actually financial incentives built into it to do that. Uh, likewise, if you're doing something that is not necessary, like low back x-rays uh, or go down the list of a, a lot of things that are way uh, overutilized, <clears throat> Uh, you will stop doing it because the financial incentives now align with doing what the evidence says uh, works and, and is appropriate and is most likely to get you to uh, a good outcome. Uh, but as long as we're paying for each little procedure, each little thing, uh, we're going to continue to have a system that really doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, so whether you want to call it capitation or capitation-based or global payment. I mean, all these words have uh, connotations that sometimes aren't uh, enthusiastically embraced. Uh, but we have to start paying for more of a population uh, and outcomes uh, basis as opposed to nickel and diming everything. Hi. So back to the idea of uh, the unique 
patient identifier, kind of similar to like how everybody has a social security number. Um, the idea seems so simple, and I think it would make the healthcare system more efficient in terms of if you're being transferred from one provider to another or one hospital to another hospital. Um, why hasn't it happened, and what are some of the pushback or challenges that you've seen, or you know? It largely has to do with privacy and the idea that you know big government is now going to be able to look at uh, everything uh, about you, uh, at least from a health perspective. And if they can do it from a health perspective, then maybe that number may be starting to be linked to other things. And it's largely um, uh, fears or concerns about how uh, the information might be uh, misused. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, the the reasons for doing it, as, as you've articulated, so outweigh uh, the concerns about, because uh, those concerns can be managed. You know, as I said, in, in the financial industry, somehow they're able to protect our, our financial information pretty well. Uh, and, you know, there are safeguards that can be put in place uh, that would protect that information. Uh, but if we really want data uh, to flow and to follow the individual, uh, then we have to basically move to that point. I thought the conclusions that you uh, shared with us were just absolutely excellent, and uh, I'm glad to see this movement again getting more more of a push. Um, in studies we did at RAND, um, it was just incredible the amount of improvement you can get in the quality of care and the in the uh, you know the the, the reduction in disability, the just improvement in quality of life that we can get if you can use electronic records and decision support systems and best practices and diffuse those through the delivery system quickly in that way in the standardized way that you're recommending. So uh, I applaud the the work that you're doing in that area. One thing that I didn't hear as much specifically mentioned was. You know, how do we get to the point where we can have electronic best practices that can be applied to decision support systems that can be used in the real time out in the field while you're seeing patients uh, and all the various levels of practitioners um, are, are, are treating patients? And I'm, I'm wondering if your group is focusing on that as well. There are a bunch of people from some of the, uh, uh, the companies uh, that are well represented uh, in that regard and, and others experts is, is uh, talked about and is certainly something that uh, is doable. I, I'm mindful, though, uh, uh, you know, for example, in, in uh, the Sacramento area, uh, there are four health systems that really dominate uh, all of healthcare. Uh, not very long ago, three of them were using the same electronic health record. I won't mention the name. Uh, you, you can probably guess which one it was. Uh, but that didn't mean they could exchange data. Uh, they couldn't talk to each other. They each had a different version, uh, a different instance of that electronic health record. And so it, literally there have been years and lots of, of uh, funds allocated to how they can share information, even though they all have the same uh, electronic health record. Uh, now, once upon a time, I thought we would all move to open source uh, and that that would uh, solve the problem. But there are a variety of reasons why open source has not uh, taken over in large part because of the dominance of proprietary uh, systems. Uh, but, um, well, leave it at that. Hi. Um, just interested, I guess, to know, uh, I think in like 2016, CMS had established uh, a goal of moving uh, to 50%, I think, of Medicare payments. 30%. 50% okay. by 2018. By 2018 yeah. for would be tied to uh, alternative payment models. I guess why has that uptake um, or transition been stymied in your mind if you could isolate like two or three? Well, it, it has occurred. If you talk to CMS, they will say they have achieved that uh, objective. Uh, the question, uh, you have to, to peel the layer of the onion a little deeper, is what does that alternative payment system mean? Uh, and uh, of the 24 or so different alternative payment systems that, that currently exist, I mean, uh, are they all equally good? Are they all achieving the same things? Uh, is it, you know, one-sided risk, two-sided risk? I mean, you know, the, there's a variety of things that uh, complicate interpreting what those, that means. Uh, but uh, they've reached the 50% uh, goal. 
uh, at least according to what I've heard him say. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're, we've achieved the objective of, of moving to value-based payment. Uh, and a lot of those alternative payment systems are arguably value-based. Um, you know, there, there's lots of, of uh, uh, innovation, shall we say, uh, going on to try to find what is the, the right way uh, of doing it. Um, so there's, there's still very much a work in progress. One final question, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, maybe 30 years ago, I met with Peggy O'Kane and her senior staff at NCQA in Washington, and I asked her this question. How do you evaluate the quality of care given to the sickest patients, the ones who die? They were stumped. And, and she answered? <laughs> <clears throat> Because I'm hoping I don't, you aren't going to ask me. So I helped her out, and then she understood that. But then within the last one month, CMS, after a many-month opportunity for comments, it, uh, issued a final rule that, that CMS does not require any hospital to have an autopsy service or even perform autopsies in this country now. None. I recall you and I had this conversation a number of occasions, and we actually, before I left the VA, we did put out a policy uh, and trying to encourage uh, greater use of autopsies. And, uh, you know, many people don't like uh, that idea, but there's no uh, doubt that it does uh, add information that's useful and does help us uh, identify where care went wrong. And, and it's a very important uh, construct in improving the quality of health care. Yeah, you did a great thing with VA on that. The Joint Commission totally screwed it up, and I know why. But now CMS, but now CMS is doing just like the Joint Commission did years and years ago, just in the last month. And I just have to shake my head and say, it's all over. If you don't care about what happens to the quality of care in the sickest patients, the ones who die, what do you care about? You get the final word. <laughs> yeah, I think we're down, to, to less, editor, right? <laughs> we're, we're down to less than 1% of uh, hospital deaths are, are now autopsied. Hospital deaths, yeah. hospital deaths, less than 1%. And I know as a hospital pathologist that they're missing all kinds of stuff, including errors in medicine. Right. All right. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here with yeah. you. And thank you, right. Patrick Kaiser. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. And thanks again to the Lundberg Institute for putting on this event.